phone or tablet or whatever. Um, we're going to be reading from Luke 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. And it is indeed exactly what Richard um, alluded to a moment ago, saying that I'm going to talk about what is commonly called the, the story or the parable of the prodigal son. Um, if you're like me, you might not know the word prodigal. I mean, I know like the story that that word is associated with. Um, but think about it maybe like wayward or lost. Think about it in maybe that context. Really, Luke chapter 15, I like to call, and I think other people call it this as well, like the chapter of lost things. Uh, when you begin chapter 15, uh, ta- tax collectors and sinners in verse 1 were drawing near to Jesus. And because of that in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, right, the religious elites and the informed of the day, right, see that happening and they start grumbling. And in verse 2 it says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And they're talking about Jesus. And they're not saying that as a statement of fact. It's not just an observation they're making. This is a grumbling, right? This is a negative thing that they're observing in their eyes. Now, if you understand the story of Jesus at all, those are the exact people that Jesus was there for, right? And so this reflects really a misunderstanding of Jesus's mission. But really deeper than that, it reflects a misunderstanding of God himself. And so in chapter 15, Jesus responds to this perception that him spending time with people that maybe are liars or cheats like tax collectors would have assumed to have been, or people that are just generally, as it says here, sinners, that those are things that he shouldn't have been involved in. Those are people he shouldn't have been associated with. And chapter 15 is Jesus responding to that. But he doesn't do it directly by just saying you're wrong he doesn't do it directly by just explaining himself immediately in fact he kind of goes a more indirect route in the beginning of chapter 15 he tells this parable about this sheep that's lost and of course the lost sheep is representative of these tax collectors and sinners right and the story is revealing to us how much God searches and how much he values this lost sheep But then he goes on to even talk, beginning in verse 8, in another way about the coin that's lost and how much effort one would go to find this lost coin, right? But then we get to the part that I want to talk about. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 11, is the story of the prodigal son. And so in chapter 15, it's all about lost things, but it's all dealing with this perception or this idea that those who are Jewish and in the know the important Jewish people like the scribes and the Pharisees, um, they didn't have the right perception of one, who God was, two, who they were, and three, what it meant for someone to be a tax collector and a sinner. And so I think while we could spend time talking about the lost sheep, we could spend time talking about the lost coin. Those are beautiful stories that help us see this. I think the the parable of this, this son that Jesus tells is perhaps maybe to me personally more moving um, because it's longer you get more detail and you can see some of the intricacies of these relationships Um, so that's what I want to spend time talking about this morning Um, this crowd I don't know everybody in the crowd super well I'm glad that you're here if you're visiting with us Um, please come back anytime you're here those of you that are here regularly I'm glad you're here And this lesson is going to kind of hopefully meet 
each one of you where you're at and will provide you with a challenge. Um, if you're a Christian, and there's a lot to be said about what that means to be a Christian, um, but if you're a Christian and you're, you're following God's word and you've been baptized with him into forgiveness and you're repented and all those things that come with living as a disciple, then you're, this, this lesson, this story might hit you in a different place. You might find yourself relating to one character over another. If you're not a Christian, you may find yourself relating to a different character because there's three main characters in this story. And so I want you to just kind of find your place in this story, find the person that sounds the most like you, that you can relate with, and key in on the lessons that you learned from that in this story. So I want all of us to be able to walk away with some immediate applications for your life. Okay. So what I'd like to do first is just read the whole story, the parable, and then we're going to go back kind of section by section and just talk about what we're seeing, and that'll be the lesson. So uh, beginning in verse 11... Like I said, there's three main characters. There's the father presented in this story, and then there's two sons. One's the older brother, and one's the younger brother. All right, so those are the three main characters, and find who you relate to in this story. Beginning in verse 11, And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. And I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you you killed the uh, the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
So in this story, these three characters uh, are not all too distant from us, right? Like a lot of us know what it means to be a father. Uh, many of us know what it means to be a sibling, like to have brothers or sisters. And all of us know what it is to be a child, like to have a father or to mo- a mother, right? And so Jesus uses kind of just relationships that most everybody are familiar with on some level to relay a very important lesson, like I said, about God, about who he is, and about really who we are and who we perceive ourselves to be, right? And the story really begins back in verse 11 by presenting us this man and this two sons. But look at verse 12. The younger brother has a desire, doesn't he? Now, I think we experience this a little bit today, but not necessarily exactly like they would have experienced it. Um, inheritances, uh, we, we kind of sometimes maybe get those, particularly if we're really wealthy, you might leave an inheritance. But back in the day, um, it was a lot more culturally significant to have an inheritance. Um, it meant something more about your family. It meant something more about your place in the family to receive an inheritance. Typically speaking, the older brother received the majority of the inheritance. Sometimes all of it. Sometimes there were instances where they wouldn't, but the norm was to receive the bulk of the inheritance. The name of the family, the prestige of the family was placed on the eldest son, right? And so when this younger son asks for the inheritance, he's asking for something that would have been an expectation of someone back then. You know, there was some expectation to receive what your father had worked for as your own, but when did you receive an inheritance? Typically when your father passed away, when it was time for you to carry on in his name or in his legacy or the family to be the man of the house, right? So when this this younger son, not the elder son, asks for his inheritance, there's a couple ways in which this is out of place. One, as he's the younger son, he's not the elder son. He doesn't have the authority or the the honor or whatever that's due the elder son to even make a request like this. I think there's some cultural uh, abnormalities with this in that regard. But maybe you can kind of overlook that as just maybe the younger son's a little weird, right? But also the implication of this is what is he wishing the father was if he's asking for the inheritance, I'm tired of waiting on you to die. Give me my stuff, (laughs) right? Now, the younger son may not have actually felt that way about the older, about the father, but that's kind of what's implied by that statement. Like, I want you for your stuff, and I'm tired of waiting on it, so just, can you just give it to me now? And so this this whole relationship can just kind of end, and I can go do what I need to do. That's kind of at the heart of this request, isn't it? Like when you see in verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Can't you imagine a loving father would kind of hear that beneath those words? Like, I'm done with you. I just want your stuff. And so I can go on my way, right? And so that's what the younger son feels like. Now, there's a lot to be said of this. One, the younger son obviously doesn't appreciate the father, Uh, But there's also this sense that this younger son wants to move on, right? Why would a a son want to get out from under his father's hand? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I've 
for a lot of different reasons, felt that way when I was a teenager and getting ready to move out. I thought, man, I'm ready to be out of my parents' house, do my own thing. And there's some of that that I think may be reflected here. Like he's a young man. He wants to kind of make his own path. But he also, you can kind of assume here in this story, is tired of listening to his father. Doesn't want to live in his father's house. He wants to do his life his way. Ways that as this story unfolds and as we read can clearly see the father wouldn't have let him live that way, right? And so he wants to live a new way, his way. And so he asked for the inheritance. You know, what's interesting to me right off the bat in verse 12 is the second part of verse 12. After the request is made, the next thing that we read is, and he divided his property between them. I don't know how my dad would have responded to a request like this. Um, one, we weren't in, there's no inheritance for me from my father. But two is, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if he would have given it to me. You know, he might have said, well, there's no way I'm giving it to you. Like, one, it's not time for that. Two, you're being thoughtless and hurtful and you don't deserve the inheritance. But this father doesn't do that. The father actually in this picture gives it to him, which I think is kind of a crazy thing to consider that the father actually gives him this inheritance. And you've got to think the father is a wise guy, a smart man, a loving man. When this story continues to, to unfold and you learn more about the father, you end up realizing he's a very compassionate and thoughtful guy. And you don't assume that he comes by this and having something for them to inherit because he's unwise or unsmart or unshrewd or skillless or anything like that. And so you have to imagine the father here knows better than to give his son this inheritance, right? So to speak. Like if he's concerned about keeping the inheritance intact, his father's got to know I shouldn't give it to this son. But clearly, I think from verse 12, we're in implied here is this father's not just concerned about the inheritance. And I think this begins to kind of paint this portrait of who we're really talking about. We're not just talking about some hypothetical father. We're not talking about a hypothetical son. We're not talking about a hypothetical older brother. Jesus is using these as symbols, as placeholders, right? Now, you've got to think back at the beginning of chapter 15 in verse 1. Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors. Culturally speaking, about as low as you go, right, in that day. Like when you think tax collectors and sinners, if you're a scribe and Pharisee, you think what has gone wrong with your life to spend time with them, right? What, ha what sins have you committed? What terrible decisions have you made to be in their company, right? But Jesus is spending time with those people. So now when you think about this story... Who does, starts to take on this persona of the younger brother? Right? Well, in the scribes and Pharisees' eyes, it's these tax collectors and sinners. Right? They're the younger brother. They're worthless. They're squandering what God has given them. Right? And the father, of course, is representative of God. Right? In the Pharisees' eyes, God is going to give an inheritance. He's going to bless his people. And people like the tax collectors and sinners, they're not worthy of that. You know, they would just squander whatever God gave them. Well, 
Jesus wants to address that. And so he's using these people as placeholders. But look what happens to this younger son, who in the Pharisees and the scribes' eyes is going to be a worthless individual. He starts to kind of prove that true, doesn't he? When the story starts to kind of pick up steam and get going, you think, man, this younger brother, he really is just worthless. You know? Like he takes his dad's money, and it says, not many days later, it's like he didn't waste any time. He gets his inheritance, verse 13, and the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The son doesn't waste any time. And you know, he doesn't just like get out of his dad's house. Like how far away does he go? He goes as far as he probably could have gotten himself. In this text, it just says a faraway country. You know, if this younger son, you got to imagine he's thinking, all right, I've got the tools. I can finally get out. So as soon as I can get my stuff together and I can book a ticket out of here, I'm gone. Right? And that's exactly what he does. You know, the son couldn't get far enough away to be out of, like, the thumb or the shadow of his dad. You know, there just wasn't any distance that was great enough, it seems like, for him to get away from there. And so now you can imagine he's thinking in verse 13 here that this son is like, you know, I'm free from the tyranny of my father's rules, right? I'm free from my father's watch, from his gazing eye, so to speak, right? And I'm free of my father's judgment. I'm far away. He can't see what's going on. He can't tell me what to do. He can't see what's going on. And I don't have to listen to him telling me I'm doing things wrong or right. And so the irony is that the son didn't want to be free of his father's blessing, though. Really, right? Could the son have left without the inheritance? He could have. You assume that like he could have just left if he was really that frustrated, right? He could have just said, God, I don't want anything from you. Father, I don't want anything from you. I'm just going to leave, right? But the son actually asks for something, right, to kind of give him what he wants to, to pursue, right? He needs something from the father to even pursue what he wants, right? You can imagine he doesn't get all the prostitutes and he doesn't get very far from home without the inheritance, and so that's the irony of this whole situation is that this, this younger son, he doesn't want the rules, he doesn't want the watch, he doesn't want the judgment, but he wants his dad's stuff and he needs it to actually do what he wants to do. If we just kind of step back from this and kind of see ourselves as this younger son for a moment, I think the younger son in the Pharisees and scribes' eyes represented the tax collectors and the sinners. I think in God's eyes represents everybody. Um, at some point in your life, you are the younger son, right? Romans tells us that plainly, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in so to speak, at some point, all of us have been the younger son. We've all wanted to run from God. We've all wanted to take his stuff and use him for what he has, Right? We've all wanted to escape the judgment of God at some point or to get out of God's house and do our own thing and live the way that we want to live. And so I see in verse 13, uh, if we ignore God and his judgments and we make a mad dash for a faraway country, 
sometimes we do that to experience our own freedoms, right? But we don't dare forget to use God's blessings along the way, do we? Think about it this way. God created us, right? We don't experience life at all without God's blessing of having given us life. And the irony of that is then we want to claim it as our own and run away from the one who blessed us with that life. Just like this guy wanted to claim the inheritance that was not his own and use it against his father's wishes and away from his father in a way that was hurtful. We can do the same thing, right? Even just with, with nothing else but the blessing of breath in our lungs, we do that to God. And so if we run away from God, that's exactly what we're doing. We're the younger son. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in, uh, arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The mirage of freedom that the son, uh, that the son sought outside of his father's home vanishes. He thought he had gotten freedom, right? But you know, that freedom that the son was really seeking, how long did it last before he saw that it was kind of a mirage, right? We don't know. We don't know how long it had been exactly. It just says once he'd spent everything. I don't imagine it took too long for this to happen. You know, and with this mirage of freedom vanishing, What goes with it? Well, his inheritance, (laughs) right? An application for us to see in this is if we place ourselves in the shoes of the younger, the younger brother here, when we ignore, or sorry, when we, uh, when God's blessings, God's blessings will be squandered and they will vanish when we seek the mirage of a, of a blessed and free life outside of his house and away from him. And what I mean by that is when we try to run from God, we're going to use the things God has given us in pointless and fruitless ways. And eventually, that becomes a little more evident, right? Like after some time, you see things are not the way they used to be. And I don't mean to imply that in any given moment in physical life, you're going to see that manifested immediately. But what I mean is there is going to be a time and place. Ultimately, at some point, judgment's going to take place. And if not before then, right, you'll be made aware of how fruitless and how much of a mirage you're squandering the blessings of God will have been. Right? Thankfully for this son and in this picture, he has the opportunity to realize that before he's dead. And that's really the only thing right, that we can hope for is like, if I'm sinning, I pray that if you're sinning, you realize that before you're dead and that you have the same opportunity that this younger son has. Because if you continue to read here in verse 15, he starts to kind of figure it out, but he's not quite there yet, right? Like he sees the blessings are kind of going away. The freedom is not going to sustain itself the way maybe he was hoping it would. And so he decides, well, I'm not I'm definitely not going back to dad's house, right? So I'm going to try to figure this out my own way, right? 
And so he goes and he hires himself out and he ends up having to take care of pigs. Now, if you're a Jewish audience, taking care of pigs is like the worst possible outcome I imagine that you can envision for yourself. One, it's just not a sexy and exciting job, is it? Like, who wants to take care of pigs? But two, it's like, if you're a Jew, not only is it a dirty job, it literally is defiling you on a spiritual level, right? Like, there is some sense in which there's a morality that's breaking taking care of pigs, But you know what the son's willing to do? As long as it doesn't take him back to his father's house, he will take care of some pigs, you know? And he realizes while he's taking care of those pigs that the pigs have it better than him. They have somebody watching out for them. It's him. He's been hired to take care of these pigs. And he realizes nobody's watching out for me. I don't have any food to eat, and nobody's giving me any, right? I see in this an application for us is that uh, leaving the house of God and squandering the things God has blessed us with, the inheritance that we can have, will eventually lead us to a place where we will realize that we have no real provision or help. I think that's by God's design. I think there's going to be a time in everybody's life where God grants them the clarity and the realization that if they're away from him, you reach this moment. Now, not all of us respond well to this. Some of us do like the younger brother. We realize our blessing's gone away, so we try to find a physical or an earthly way to fix it. I'm going to hire myself out to take care of some pigs. But you know what? God isn't done with, with him yet. And so, thankfully, this son also has the realization that the pigs have it better than him. Like, he just kind of keeps descending, right? We can have that same experience. If you're living right now like this younger son is living, if you're taking the blessings God has given you, and we'll just focus on one, life. If you've taken breath in your lungs to waste it and run away from God, then God is going to do something like this. You're not necessarily going to take care of pigs, but he's going to give you moments where you're going to say, how have I gotten here? Why is this it? Like, why is nobody helping me? Why do I feel as if there's no provision for me, that things are bad, right? I believe that to be true. And I would pray that as we continue in this story, you'll respond like this guy ends up doing. But look at verse uh, 17 here. 17 through 20. Look at this resolution that the younger son ends up making. In verse 17... It says this, but when he came to himself, that's an important concept that I want us to kind of sit on for a moment. It's almost as if Jesus is presenting the younger brother as having been outside of his mind for a little while. Another way to think about it is Jesus is saying the younger brother was being crazy, right? He was being crazy. Now, the beauty of this story, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, is that he doesn't stay crazy, right? But he comes to himself in verse 17. He says, he realizes basically that even the servants in his father's house have it better than him. And so he resolves to say this, I will arise and go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Reality sets in. I would say this is the moment where reality really sets in, right? Right? 
He's come back to himself. Reality hits. And it's important that when this wayward son steps back and surveys his desperate situation, it's important that he actually sees reality. Sometimes we have this moment and we're still not seeing the truth. We'll say something's askew here, right, like before. I'll just hire myself out and I'll take care of pigs. We need to have the moment where we step back and say, it's better in my father's house to be a servant than to be here, right? It's equally important not only that he sees reality, but that he sees the reality in front of him with a sense of humility, right? All of us, whether we're there currently or not, have at some point related to this guy. You're away from God. If you're not away from God right now today, it's because you realized your reality. It's better to be a servant in my father's house than to be here with the pigs, so to speak, right? But not just because you realize that reality. Sometimes people realize that reality and they buck against it. They say, no, I'll find a way through this. I'm not going back. And they end up more resolved than ever to stand against the father. But this guy approaches this reality with a sense of humility, doesn't he? Because look at what he says. He comes to himself, he sees the reality, and he concludes that he's going to go ask his father to just be a servant. Right? Of course, the application, I think, in this section for us is really plain. If we hope to go from being a wayward son, going back to our father's house, we need to see reality and we need to approach it with humility, right? If we're going to begin to restore ourselves to God, we need to do those two things. Look at verse 20, um, kind of the second part of verse 20. So he ends up going back to his father, right? It says he arose and he goes back to his father. I don't want to overlook that part at the beginning of verse 20. It's not that he just thinks, I'm going to say this stuff to his father, and never actually goes to do it. He does go to return to his father. He takes action, right? I will return and I will say, right? But in the second part of chapter, or verse 20, look at what the dad does, the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If the father in this story represents God... Um, I don't really understand this part for myself. Like, I don't know if I would have done this. But this is who God is. And this is why Jesus even begins telling these stories all through chapter 15, because the scribes and the Pharisees thought God would reject this guy coming back. You know, God should not eat with tax collectors and sinners. God doesn't think that way. God's not going to respond that way. I don't know. I'm putting words in their mouths, but you can see the type of thinking that they would have and how this flies in the face of it. A God that comes to someone who's done this with open arms, looking for them to return and embracing them and kissing them is not a God that the Pharisees and scribes had perceived, right? And thankfully, we can be in this room together recognizing that all of us have been the younger son at some point. Some of us may still be. We can make that recognition with hope because God is like this. Because God doesn't want you to stay away. 
You know, if you decide to squander your inheritance, the Father here is a portrait of how God gives you an opportunity to fix that. Right? But let's keep looking at this. The Father wasn't just content. God isn't just content with knowing that He was gracious to the Son by granting His request. The Father is not just content in hoping and praying that the Son would come to His senses. The Father was actively seeking His Son's return. Right? And if you continue in this, we went through a series for, for months and months and months, it seemed like, talking about love from 1 Corinthians 13 and like all the qualities of love. Read verse 20 here again. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Doesn't that sound like this? Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. Doesn't that sound like God from chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? God is love, 1 John 4. Love looks like that. And then Jesus paints the picture of the Father being compassionate, running and embracing and kissing his totally worthless son, right? We can know that as soon as we begin to come to God, we make these, we face that reality and we approach it humbly, He will meet us with this kind of reaction. He will. And that's what Jesus is trying to relay, trying to teach, is that He will approach us like this. Look at verse 21. So the Son ends up saying exactly what he said he, was, he resolved to say, right? I'm going to say this to the Father. And so he does in verse 21. Um, I think there's something to be said for actually doing what you say you're going to do, actually repenting in the way that you know you need to repent. Like beginning uh, back in uh, section 20 or 17 through 20, he says, I know I need to say this basically. And so I'm going to go to him. The important part about verse 21 is because he actually says it, Right? I just want to highlight that for a moment because sometimes I know what I need to do and I don't actually do what I need to do. The younger son here actually does and says what he needs to say. Um, but moving on from this, and I think that's a great portrait of what true repentance is. Um, look at verse 22 again, uh, moving forward. He says, at the end of verse 21, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22 but the father said, not to the son, which I find interesting, but to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You know, the son comes to his dad with some really sad stuff. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to be your son, which is kind of true. Like he's proven himself to kind of not have been worthy of the inheritance, right? Um, you know what I find interesting is the dad doesn't really respond to that directly. He also doesn't refute it. <laughs> Did you notice that? He doesn't say, no, 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 like it's okay. Like you're still worthy to be. He kind of is not. And I, I don't know if like, I don't want to put words in the father's mouth here, but he doesn't actually respond to that directly. But you can almost kind of see him going, like in his head, like thinking, yeah, you kind of haven't been. 
But it's it's a non-issue, really, right? I think that's really what it boils down to is the son is back and he's repenting. And so it's a non-issue. The father is ready to receive him. He's already embraced him. He's already kissed him. And so when the son is like pouring his heart out saying, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be your son. All the dad's thinking about now at this point is like, let's bring him back to where he was before. Right? Get his ring, get his robes, put everything in order. And so I think this is a really interesting uh, thing here that this happens this way. The father loves the son so much that even though he has indeed made himself unworthy to be a son, um, he's made himself unworthy of blessing the father restores both of those things. He makes him his son again, and he gives him blessings again, even though he's unwilling for both of those to be true of him. Why, you know, you kind of ask this question, why is the son restored to full sonship, so to speak? You ever ask yourself that question reading this parable, like, why? Why is someone who's so unworthy to be called a son and be given blessings, why is he restored to, like, the fullness of sonship again? You know, I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but all I know to say is for no other reason than the father wanted him to be. Like, there's just, I don't have another answer for that other than God wanted this son to be restored, so he was. And I think that's true about us. Like, we look at ourselves and we say, there's no reason why God should want to bless me because I've sinned. There's no reason why God would want to have me as a son because I'm corrupt and I've made mistakes and I've rebelled other than he wants to. Like He wants to have you as a son. The question is, are you going to respond like this younger brother did and come to him repenting, right? All right, so that's what I wanted to see about the father and the younger son for, for now. But the story doesn't actually end there. That would be a really beautiful kind of note to end this story on. But it doesn't end here. In verse 25, Jesus actually begins talking more about the other brother who we haven't seen since the beginning of the story. Now, what we're left to conclude about this brother is he's been with his dad the whole time that this younger son has been living it up. Right? In fact, in verse 25, where is the older brother? He's in the field. He's doing the work of his father, you know? And he's not just with his dad, like, chilling. He is working in the field of his father. For those of us that are Christians, for those of us that feel like, you know, I'm with God, I'm trying to work in his field, we might relate more to this guy. Maybe we used to be the younger brother, but, like, we've been back long enough to feel more like the older brother right? The temptation for us is to make the mistake the older brother makes, right? And we're going to talk about that here. The older son is in the field. He draws near to the house and he hears music and dancing. And so he calls one of the servants over and he asks why that's happening. Verse 27, the servant says to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. Why would the older brother be upset that his younger brother came back? 
Why? You know? Just like why would God restore the younger brother? Why would the older brother be upset about this? I think there's a lot of potential answers. Jesus doesn't offer us one right off the bat. But I think it's maybe something along these lines. The older brother had forgotten that he was just unworthy to be the son of this father. Like he happened to be born in the right house. He happened to be given blessings, right? That's how sonship kind of works. You don't really choose your parents, like physical sonship, right? And so I think, though, that this isn't always true in this parable. I think the idea that is true that's conveyed out of that is he thought sonship was a right that he had. When really, when he boiled it down, he had no say, right, in whether he got to be a son or not to this guy, right? Now, what I mean by that is not that the parallel to us is not that we, get, we can't choose whether we're sons of God, but what I'm saying is, Sometimes we feel like what this guy felt, that we have a right to be where we are. And because I'm here working and other people aren't, they are unworthy of being able to be where I am. And that's not at all true. If I'm a Christian and I'm with God, so to speak, verse 25, right, working in the fields with my father and the younger son, someone else, comes back to God, and they're restored to full sonship. Why would I be angry about that? I don't even have a right to be here in the first place. I'm glad that they've now been given the right to be here too. That should have been the mentality of this, this son in this moment, but he wasn't. He was angry. Right? And he was not willing to go in. So his father comes out and begins pleading with him, and he answers and he says to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Isn't that how we sound sometimes? <laughs> or maybe we don't say that out loud, but we think it, right? Some of us might think things like that sometimes. Maybe not even all the time, but sometimes you're tempted to think this way, right? And maybe you do. Maybe you think, man, I've been a Christian for a long time, right? 10, 20, 30 years. And this person who is not a good person is now getting to enjoy, like, being with us and getting to enjoy people helping them and praying for them. And it's like, it's like they've been here the whole time. Like, they haven't been with us. They've been getting to do whatever they want to do while we've been doing this other stuff, and now they get all the stuff we get. Can't we think that sometimes? I know I have. And, I, and then that moment, I'm like the older brother. And you know what God wants to do with me when I'm being like that? In the story, he pleads with the older brother. He pleads with him. Do you want to be someone God has to plead with? You know? I want to be someone that God is proud of, that God claims as a son, that God has in his house, and God will celebrate the return of brothers with. But I don't want to have to be someone God has to come out to, like, to plead. Like, please come in. Like, I've made them a son, 
and I have to beg with you to come like be happy about it, that's not someone that I should want to be. It's not someone I am. It's not someone I should ever be. That God would have to do that with me. But that's not where this ends. Um, look at verse 31 and 32. The father says, Son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. He doesn't, again, kind of like the younger brother, he didn't refute that the younger brother was not worthy to be a son. He just started putting stuff on him and making him a son. He doesn't even refute that this younger brother, I mean this older brother, had actually been a faithful son. You know, the older brother's like, I've done everything, I've been here this whole time. And he says, yep, yep, that's kind of true, right? You've always been with me. But that's not the point. The point isn't like how much you've been with me. The point is not like how faithfully you've done my commands, right? It's actually, is not about you at all, right? It's about the younger brother that's come back. And you're losing sight of the life that they have found, because you feel like you've earned something, right? You've earned the right to have something granted to you, like this illustration of a young goat and partying with your friends, right? When reality is, yes, you've been with me, right? In verse 31, and all that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate because he's found life. Application for this, the things that I think that the older son was supposed to recognize is that the youngest that the youngest was not receiving something that was not privy to the eldest. Okay? So what I mean by that is when you feel tempted to think like the older brother thinks about other people coming back to God, you think, man, they're getting so much that's stuff that you have too. God isn't giving you some or giving them something he can't also give you. And just because someone else receives a blessing from God, his resources are infinite. It doesn't diminish what you receive from him. Right? Sometimes we compete for resources, right? Like if my dad gives me a cookie, he has to give you a cookie. And if I take all the cookies, you have no cookies, right? That's not how it works with God. God can give me all of something and give you all of something and still have all of it to give, right? That's one reality that this, this older brother needed to recognize. Two is that his blessing and inheritance were not diminished. You remember that who squandered the inheritance, the younger brother? Whose inheritance did he squander? His own. What was still intact for the older brother? His inheritance was not affected at all by this. So why would he be upset that the younger brother was coming back? Right? He shouldn't have been. And finally, that this was not even about him. This was about life being found. Sonship being regained. If you're tempted to think like the older brother, remember that God's blessings aren't diminished when other people receive them. You won't get less than what you ought to get. That, in fact, the eternal life that is in place for you, the inheritance of being with God someday that God is going to give you, isn't in jeopardy if someone else regains theirs or loses theirs. Yours is still where it needs to be. You're not competing. And then finally, you need to remember that 
This is not about you. It's about them and their life. So um, I had James read John chapter 14. Um, He read 5 through 7. Jesus is the Father. Like, he is God, right? So Jesus is trying to teach him not just about, like, how we think about God the Father. He's teaching them about himself in a lot of ways, right? This is who I am. I'm God, and this is how I respond to the older brother. This is how I respond to the younger brother. But you know what? Because he became a man, he's also in kind of a weird way the older brother to us. You know? Like Hebrews chapter, what is it? Chapter 2 talks about Jesus being the older brother. And I think that's a really powerful image when you think about this, because Jesus is not, he's not going to be bitter or jealous when you're faithful. In fact, if Jesus had been the older brother in this story, how do you think the story would have been different? You know? Like the older brother might have gone to find the younger brother or maybe would have tried to help him make a better decision or would have pleaded with him. Yeah, I don't see any of that. And then when the younger brother returns, if Jesus is the older brother in this picture, what do you think he's doing? We need to model ourselves after Jesus. And we can know that Jesus is, for those of us that are Christians, he is our older brother. Hebrews 2 talks about that. right? And he can show us the way. He can show us how to be a brother. Perfectly. Right? So if you're not a Christian, you're in the muck and mire with the pigs right now. Come back to the Father's house. If you haven't been baptized, if you haven't repented, that's something you need to do. No sonship, no inheritance for you until that's done, until you're back with the Father. But for those of you who are Christians here, the challenge is help the younger brother get back and rejoice when the younger brother comes back. appreciate you guys paying attention. Um, Richard's picked out a song for us to, to sing, and he'll lead it at this time.